These chairs are still squeaky, look. Do you want to stop it? No. Yeah, but... Okay. Actually, that could be the intro. <laughs> Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur. So this is a collaboration episode. We're always experimenting on the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast and YouTube channel. So this is a collaboration between myself and Phil Learney. Phil is one of the biggest names in the UK in the online fitness coaching space and many personal trainers and people in the health and fitness industry follow my work. So rather than this be your standard interview you might see, It's a collaboration and a conversation between Phil and I. Phil gets pretty heated about the Game Changers documentary and about veganism. He's got some strong ideas on that. We talk about the the fitness and personal training business and going from a one-man band PT to a proper company, which is why I think people follow me. So sit back, relax. Let's go in with the collaborative conversation between myself and Phil Learney. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and we're in the studio. I'm with Phil Learney. Phil, this is everyone. Hey, everyone. Uh, and Phil and I have lived in a little parallel universe of mutual respect, that would be fair to say. Yeah, yeah, most certainly, yeah. Uh, and we just, just decided to do a bit of a collaboration. Yeah. Um, we've got some topics we want to discuss. Uh, I definitely want to talk about the whole thing about whether we should be vegan or not, both in sort of business, health and fitness. Um, definitely want to talk about fitness trends. Um, I'm interviewing David Lloyd soon, uh, and I want to talk about um, going from a PT to someone like David Lloyd. He's built an empire. Yep. I want to ask you stuff about that. One to one to one to many. Um, anything you want to ask me? Uh, I think along the way we'll probably delve into some things about you know how you got to where you are, the sort of battles that you've contended with, and obviously the stuff that compares and and and, and it's very similar to what the fitness industry go through. I think there's a very kind of select sort of person that enters the fitness industry, and the the majority of people probably have the same worries, the same challenges. Uh, the same kind of hurdles to overcome. So it'll be interesting to get your take on those. Okay, cool. Um, should we get straight in there? Sure. So for people who don't know you, maybe we both try and do our own little story in 30 seconds each because we don't want to bore everyone and we don't want to brag too much about all of our accomplishments. <laughs> but yeah, sort of 30 seconds. Who's Phil and what does Phil do? Who's Phil? Uh, Northerner, clearly. Uh, 20 years in the industry as a PT. Yeah. So I was a PT actively for 20 years. Pretty much bang on. Retired pretty much on my 20th anniversary. Wow. Uh, dealt with, we estimated around about 40,000 clients over that time. Uh, 40,000 PT sessions, not 40,000 different clients. Yeah. Uh, retired from that to focus on our educational proposition, which is the, the academy. Uh, I now coach coaches uh, in the fields of business, nutrition, and coaching alongside a team of other people. And our whole thing is to sort of deliver something to the, the industry in which Coaches can improve their businesses, improve the quality of life, and those around them. Mm. So that's pretty much what we do. Cool. So um, I built a company called Progressive, which became the UK's largest property training company. And now we do podcasting, social media, public speaking, and business courses. 
Um, Mark and I own about 850 properties. We either own them, co-own them, manage them in our letting agency just over there. We have about 85 staff in the office. Um, my podcasts are Disruptive Entrepreneur and a few of my books have done quite well and helped me get my personal brand out there. Um, I'll tell you something that's interesting we were just talking about before we started is, weirdly, quite a lot of people in fitness follow me. Um, and I'm obviously, I get like bicep envy with all these guys that come in their studio and have... Uh, in the fitness industry. Um, Kieran, you thought people follow me in fitness because managed to go from one to one to one to many. Yeah. Uh, because maybe, you know, I was doing all the training for my speaking in the early days uh, and now I've trained trainers like Phil does. Yes. Y- you said the money or, yeah. the, or the hope and the dream of making money. Of being able to scale your business. Yeah, because the reason I want to say this is people might start thinking that I only want to do collaborations with fitness people. Um, I don't. I'm, in, I'm interested <laughs> in fitness. Um, but it's just something that was a bit serendipitous or strange. I wasn't really sure. But we'll cover that later. I want to start with the topic that's on everyone's lips. Okay. And that is um, whether we should all go vegan. So there's this um, Game Changer documentary, obviously backed by some serious people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lewis Hamilton. Let's be honest, it's not the first film on Netflix about not eating meat. There's a big movement away from meat. I mean, a few years ago, veganism was the the biggest growing um, community or um, group or cult, even, however, whatever you want to call it, the the biggest growing movement. Um, And I'm really torn about it. And you're in the health and fitness industry. What you, do you think? You're torn in what way? You're torn in the uh, as to whether you do or whether you don't? I'm torn in that I think there's probably bad science or biased science on either side. I'm torn because ethically I hate really bad treatment of animals. Um, I'm also torn because my naive belief of fitness and health is that actually when you take one full food group out, it's probably not good for you. And if you, do you remember Atkins diet? Of course you do. And yeah. whenever you t- try and take one food group out, um, cause there's always a new evil food. It might be fat. It might be sugar. You know, it might be artificial stuff. Um, so I, I do. I mean, my wife is well into health and fitness and she says there's so many essential vitamins and minerals in meat that we need. Um, so I'm torn on all those three levels. Okay. It's a, it's a tricky one on, 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 on all those different levels. Uh, when you talk about serious people, we're talking about famous people, really, when it comes to the Netflix documentary. We're talking about people who are reasonably well-known in their different fields. And again, if you break yeah. it all down, it was a bit of a mockery. The whole, the whole documentary, the whole Game Changers thing, the people in it that they were, they were, they were claiming they'd, they'd improved their performance, they actually hadn't. Some of them had had their worst performances ever wow. when they became vegan. There was a lot of stuff that was kind of cherry picked yeah. and popped in there. And it was a, it was an entertaining thing. You know, I stated that I was never going to watch it. You know, I, I put a post out and I said, look, the problem is, is that if I waste my time watching this, this mockumentary. <laughs> Say what you think, mate. Why don't you? <laughs> but, it, but it is. It's, it's Netflix. It's a great play, source of entertainment. It's a great source of entertainment. And they, they've done it before. They, they'll do it again. They get a bunch of big names. Uh, they cherry pick a bunch of statistics and things like this. And, and, and they come out with this thing. So they're that, not that, balanced. Is that what no, you're saying? No, this and thing, this thing goes viral and everybody talks about it. And, and again, it becomes topical everywhere. Mm. And should we all turn to a vegan diet? Most definitely, in my view, no. 
Do we need to eat more plants in our diets? Absolutely, yes. And again, this, this was something that was largely misinterpreted in the actual documentary was plant-based versus vegan. They're two different things. You know, a plant-based diet is where the majority of your diet is coming from plant-based sources. A vegan diet is where you completely meat and animal products and everything like that, and there is a strong ethical side to it. Yeah. So when we talk about plant-based, plant-based is something that, as a, as a health and fitness practitioner for the last 20 years, I've wanted people to eat more plants. Mm. It's always been the thing. If I was to pick on one thing that the, the average Westerner doesn't consume enough of, it's plant-based foods. Yeah. Because they're lacking in vitamins, minerals, you know, satiety is a massive one, right? You know, if they, there's one selling point for vegetables or plant-based food, it is the fact that you will get massive amount of satiety, which is basically the, the feeling of being full, which means you eat less or you, you don't overconsume. consume uh, You get huge amounts of fiber, which again is good for your gastrointestinal tract and blah, blah, blah. But alongside that, you're getting all the vitamins and minerals for very few calories. So yeah. for, for, for the last 20 years, that's been something that I've always pushed and promoted and blah, blah, blah. And now all of a sudden, they're putting into it. It's a plant-based diet, yeah. which is consume slightly less meat, which environmentally is more sound. Yeah. Uh, consume slightly more plants, which again, from what we know right now, is probably environmentally a little bit more sound. They're still a little sketchy. Yeah. You know, because we're getting evidence that's, that's coming through now. And the problem is with evidence-based stuff is there's a there's a lapse between when it first gets proposed as to what are we looking at here to when it actually becomes not necessarily conclusive because nothing ever is really concluded, but when we've got something substantial that actually says, yes, we reduce the amount of meat that people are consuming and the environment is going to improve. You know, so it's, it's still a little bit out there with respect to where it's at. Should people consume more plants in the diet? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Do we need everybody to switch to a vegan diet? Now, without getting to, into the intricacies of the challenges that we face as practitioners in, in what we do, and, and again, I'm sure you'll be able to relate to this on, on a multitude of levels, and one of the questions I was actually going to ask you was to do with habits and behaviours, right? Yeah. We're taking people who've had habits and behaviours for the vast majority of their life, surrounding food intake. Now, the vast majority of those people that we're talking to or about have also tried to diet, which dieting is a simple concept. It's reduce the amount of calories that you consume and, and expend more. It's, yeah. it's that simple. And we can talk about it in that simplified manner and throw it down people's necks as much as we want. It's the execution that people can't do, right? It's the execution. Now, if we genuinely think that all these people who have eaten a varied eclectic diet all of their years, who can't reduce the amount of energy they're taking in, are going to take a whopping great portion of it and take it away and all of a sudden just eat in a completely different fashion, we're deluded. Mm. You know, that is just never going to yeah. happen. So I made a suggestion on a podcast yesterday. Yeah. Because um, I was having a conversation with a vegan friend of mine. By the way, I'm fascinated about this. I am torn. So I was vegetarian for quite a few years. I'm not an expert like you in it, but I, what I, I believe, I believe I usually get quite a balanced view. Yeah. And I often believe that each side is often imbalanced and I'm looking for balance. I'll give you an example. Tony Robbins, very famous guy, yep. personal development, uh, went on and on and on and on for a couple of decades and don't eat meat, don't eat meat, don't eat meat, don't eat meat. Full fish diet, nearly died of mercury poisoning. And I just think there's a lot of irony in that because he's obviously an obsessive guy and he went too obsessive. And I just think, Take a massive food group out, danger, because the food groups are there for a reason. You know, like, we, don't, we, we often knock a lot of conventional health and safety advice, um, sorry, health and fitness advice, but actually, balanced diet 
Not actually bad advice, I don't think. What's it's, wrong it's with great balance? advice, but it's, it's the interpretation of it, right? Of course. So what do we define as balance? Yeah. It's a bit like, you know... A bit of everything. Lots ba- of different balance. Balance of everything, right? Yeah. You know, we're, we're all trying to find this balance in life. You know, we, we talk a lot, you know, probably in a slightly different field, but we talk a lot about that, that balance between work and home life, right? Mm. You know, it's something everybody's trying to negotiate yeah. all the time and fitting in your fitness and all yeah, your true. hobbies and all these yeah, other things. And how do you things. define that? that is and how do you point. define that? And, yeah. the, and when we talk about a balanced diet, what are we actually defining? We're just talking about the eat well plate. So I'll tell you what you can do, and this is the, the thing I started discussing, is what about if instead of going from meat eater to vegan, you went two days a week, you had one right. meal with me, yeah. three days a week vegetarian, and one or two days a week, no dairy. But we have this really wacky thing about extremism, right? Yeah. Is that, is that we're like, and, and that's you all... either have to or you don't. Yeah, true. There's and no... You, and you're only ethically sound if you do it all or none. Yeah, yeah. But actually, if, if I eat 70% less meat, is that not good? Am I not nearer a vegan? And just because I choose to eat a bit that's maybe organic or, you know, grass-fed or whatever they say, surely that's still good. Yeah, and one of the one of the one of the words I've used an awful lot is sustainable, right? Yeah. And this is something I've talked about. For yeah, years. well, in your industry, yes. you're you know you're trying to hack. How do I get someone not to just start personal training and health and fitness, but actually keep going for yeah, years? Yeah, but but sustainable in that respect, but also sustainable when we talk about the environment and we talk about the plant based versus the meat and blah blah blah. It's it's sourcing. Where does all this stuff come from? Yeah, and that is a critically important thing. A, a, a friend of mine who who is a bit out there, you know, and he is a very you know he's very extreme with these things you know based over in the US and I think they get it a little bit more with respect to these two tangents and he talked about you know it's very important you know where your food came from and again when we talk about farming and we talk about sustainability and we talk about you know I'm, I'm from Cumbria you know I'm from the farming capital of the UK practically mm. and it's a lot of my farmer friends talk about this sustainability and this kind of is stuff organic, is it grass fed, is it, you know, is it sustainable for them to farm and create a living from these kind of things? And one of the challenges they have is the fact that for them to coordinate with everything that should be sustainable, they can't afford to do mm. it. You know, yeah. it means that their livelihood and their quality of life is going to go down because they have to fulfill all these criteria to become an organic farm, yeah. which we know is a little bit sketchy. The rules as to how you become organic and blah, blah, blah. It's all a little bit out there. Mm. So it, it it's a funny one, but it's this tangent. It's these two extremes. And and like you say, if, if you, a couple of days a week, you have like a, a vegan Tuesday or a plant-based Tuesday or a plant-based Thursday, or if you just interpret that right the way across your across your diet. I always look at people's, you know, common foods they eat or common meals they eat. What's, name me one of your favourite meals. My favourite meal. I like Wagamama's. I like Thai. Right. What about yeah. stuff that you cook yourself? Um, well, we get this. Maybe. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> me cooking, I don't yeah. ever cook. Don't ever cook. Um, my wife does the, is it HelloFresh? Um, well, I say my wife. I right, have so a housekeeper who cooks for me. But so, do the HelloFresh. Shall we try and get some, HelloFresh? Let's try and get like different meals each day. Right. So if we were talk about like a curry. Let's talk about curry, really Love easy one, right? So, so you take a, a Thai curry, and instead of instead of using the quantity of meat that you're using, yeah, you might replace some of it with beans, pulses, yeah. legumes, and things like this, and keep a little bit of meat in there. Yeah. So ultimately, you're just thickening the dish up. You're putting more fiber in. You're putting more nutrients in, and you've had you've kept the protein that you probably need yeah. in there. And now you've got something more balanced. It's more plant based. It's environmentally more friendly. You've ticked all the boxes there. Yeah. And you're probably going to eat it because you actually like that food. Yeah. Well, that's it. Like I. I was vegetarian for quite a few years. And in the end, it's different now. But when I basically came back to meat, it was because when you went out, you couldn't get any decent food and it just got harder and harder to sustain it. 
Was that to do with your life, lifestyle though? Did your lifestyle evolve to the point that you ate out more and ate in less? Because again, I think we're, you know, we both went through that generation really of when we were young, most of the food was made at home. Mm. Now, very yeah, there's few a lot people, better choice now. There's oh, definitely very, way better choice. Very few people eat, eat in now. Mm. You know, you either order in or you eat out. Yeah. You know, because it's convenient. Mm. It's Delivery. easy. It's not Delivery you know, saves everyone's absolutely. life. Absolutely. You know, so yeah. every, all of that is facilitated now. So a lot of the stuff that we do with respect to coaches delivering services is you need to know what these people are delivering. Because if you are to deal with a, a modern day client, I need to know where you eat from, mm. not what you eat. I need yeah. to know where. Yeah. That's one of the most important things. And you know, what's your, your, your habit and your patterns and behaviors is, is on a Friday, do you always order in from delivery? I want to know who you're ordering from. Mm. So I can look at their menu and go, look, Rob, mm. this is probably a better choice for you because yeah. you're consistently going to do this. And we know that most human beings, they only rotate around you know, a few dozen foods and that's it. Yeah. So, and then we'll move on to one or the other and, you know, you, you go through little phases, don't you? Where you, yeah. you know, there's a pizza that you particularly like, then you kind of go off it because you eat too much of it and then you move on to something else and you move that in and that sits in there for a few months and then you move on to something else. And that's how it works. Yeah. And understanding that about human beings is that it's part of how we're going to change the behaviours that these people do to ultimately end up in probably better health. But you wanted to talk to me about habits and behaviours and changing those. What do you want to talk about on that? Really, it was it was one of the things that, that over the years that, and, and I think you kind of appreciate them more as you get a little bit older, is that one of the things that you habitually do, you know, the routines, the things that you, you've done or you've changed over the years that just made a massive, massive change. And obviously, the thing, there's certain things that are, are out of your control. You yeah. know, for example, you know, we've got three kids, so, so there's certain things that we can, we can plan a routine. Yeah. But it sometimes goes out whack because of something that disrupted. But for the most part, there's, there's times in my day where I know I'm doing this, 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 and that is part of my sequence. And if I do that correctly on a daily basis, I'm progressing. Yeah. I'm moving forward. So what are the things that, that you've developed over the years or changed or what's your routine? Mm. You know? Okay. So for me, they're three different questions. So I think the main thing I've developed is a hunger for learning. So... I've got kind of two periods of my life. On this side, it's before 2005, and on this side, it's after 2005, because something happened to my dad, which really threw my world out of balance, but forced me into a different mindset. Um, so before 2005, I never read a book. I didn't really want to... I, I didn't have any mentors. You can't teach me anything. What do you know? Yeah. You're just bragging. I don't like you. I'll look at you with your big muscles and your fancy car. Fuck off. And I had that really... And it wasn't arrogance, actually. It was a fear of rejection, but it, it was manifested in this And this big... is something I talked to Kieran about yeah. before, is that I think that's a massive thing in the fitness industry. It's because everybody comes from yeah, a point... Because people of... think of e ego as bravado, but it's actually a lot of yeah. fear and insecurity. They, they come from a point of insecurity. Most yeah. people start fitness journeys whatever it might be, losing weight, yes. building muscle, whatever it might be, from a point of insecurity, right? Yeah. You know, point yeah. of insecurity. So therefore, they are a little fragile. Yeah, and that was me. Right. And so I didn't do any personal development. I couldn't learn from anyone. I was always defensive. I thought that what I knew was right and everything was wrong. I was jealous and envious of successful people. I thought successful people was going and screwing people over or evil capitalist bastards. <laughs> and that was my overall worldview. You know, if you were successful, you were either lucky or you were screwing someone over. Yeah, to it's get the luck there. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Everybody, everybody's yeah. lucky. They had a stroke of something. So that them, that right? was my worldview. I didn't know any different. And then this new worldview was: I can learn something from everyone. I listen to podcasts. I listen to audiobooks. I'm a student of life, 
Um, I'm open-minded. I can take feedback. Of course, there's still the ego there a bit. There's things I don't agree with. There's things you'll challenge me on. There's triggers you'll get on me. But I'm a human being, so that's okay. Um, you know, whatever I want to do in my life, I can go and find it. I can go and ask for help. I, if I want to change my career, I can change it. If I go um, and really focus and obsess on something, I can get good results in quite a quick amount of time. Like money is a great thing in my life, not a bad thing in my life. So it's like the worldview completely flipped. So I'd say that's the fundamental change of mindset. So you could say it's a more um, a cause mindset rather than effect. So effect is I'm affected by, I'm a victim I can't control. Yeah, like a victim mindset, yeah. right? Cause Absolutely. is I am the master of my own destiny. I have yep. an abundant mindset, not a scarcity mindset. I can go and make things happen. Um, so that was the shift. And for me, it happened in a few weeks over December 2005. Um, I believe to change, there are probably two or two to three ways to change your mindset. Um, one is a natural change over time. So I'm told that sort of every 10 years, we, we very much change. Yeah. And I think your values and what you think about and believe can change. So, you know, we all change when we had kids, for example, and things. So, so I think there's the natural progression of your life will create change. There's some kind of desire. So I want to be a better person. I want to grow. I want to improve. Or there's a fucking hard event in your life which shocks you. So yeah, someone yeah, gets yeah. murdered, you lose a family member. For me, my dad had a massive mental breakdown and you just question everything. And they're the three ways, main ways I see that we change in terms of mindset. For me, this happened, the, the shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I could try and teach people to do is try and control it by wanting to learn, wanting to be better, wanting to educate yourself, being curious all the time, like being interested in people, all those, um, you know, being resourceful, all those states of mind are ones that help you grow, that help you develop. Don't just change every 10 years because life takes you that way or just wait until something really shit happens. So then your third, the third part of the question really was routines. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I have to learn something every day. I want to meet interesting okay. people. I want to do podcasts. I want to listen to audio books. I want to listen to podcasts. I want to go and meet cool people. I want to get involved in really good conversations. I want to have good mentors. Um, and so there's that element. And then there's the compartmentalized diary element. So I get up about 5 a.m. I have the same coffee. I've gone to almond milk, by the way, just almond to go back to the, yeah. Cheeky. Um, yeah. Um, uh, and so from about 5.30 to 8, I'm getting all my stuff done. I'm not doing stuff with the kids. I'm not doing stuff for other people. I'm not... I'm doing my key result area tasks, my income generating tasks. Um, maybe it's working on my personal brand. Maybe it's writing my book. Maybe it's, um, I don't know, developing our global strategy. And for me, I get the majority of my high level work done at that time. Um, between eight and nine, I usually do a workout um, and I often do content online. Yep. Uh, and I often take calls when I do a workout, as long as it's not a really strenuous one for a bit of leverage. I do my meetings, 9.30 to 10, 10 to 10.30, 10.30 to 11. I have 11 till one off um, to work on my own stuff again. But I'll usually do a bit of social media and sort of have a bit of a relax. And then one to two, two to three, three to four, we'll fit in interviews like this. Yep. And then I try and have four till seven with the family. And then seven to 7.45 or 6.45 to 7.30, I do calls. And then evening off to watch Netflix, to hang out with my wife and just relax. And um, that changes school school term time, yeah, and and holiday As time. Because in holiday time, yep. the kids become way more important. Yep. Um, 
but that's I've got a pretty set structure and I juggle it a bit. Um, but I'm probably four or five times more productive. Here's the paradox you have as an entrepreneur. When you work for someone, what do you desire the most? Probably freedom. I don't want to be told what to do by anybody. I want to just do whatever I want. I want to get up when I want. I want to work when I want. I want to travel when I want. I want to do what I want. And then one day you work for yourself and you're like, well, what the fuck do I do? I've got no structure. I've got no accountability. Yeah, I can get no up whenever I want. Exactly. And I you can, actually end up yeah, 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 And you yeah. get lost and you get overwhelmed and you don't know what to do or where to go. And it's a real paradox. Again, going back on my industry, going back in the fitness industry. Now, what we've got in the fitness industry is we've got a lot of young people, people who have no commitments outside of just the work they do. You know, they yeah. get up in the morning, uh, they, they, they head off to work, they get in, they see a few clients, they then leave from seeing a few clients, they go and train, they go home, they sit down, they watch some Netflix, and that's their day. You know, and when life kicks in, that all of a sudden is going to get disrupted. It's going to be messed up. It's going to be, which means you're no longer in that advantageous position. You know, I remember back in the day when I was, uh, I was a single bloke, I was in complete control of my own time and everything was regimented, everything. I would literally, you know, I would know on the button, even my clients, you know, I moved all my clients around. So I knew that I had a 6 a.m., a 7 a.m., a 9 a.m. I had a 9.15, 10.15, 11, uh, 11.15 and then a 12.30. And then after that, I was done. That was my day as a PT when I was a coach. And I would not move out of those windows for anybody. It's They would have to fit in those slots, which meant that the rest of the day was mine, which meant I could build the rest of my business and businesses outside of that time. But I would I would, I would be turning off my laptop at 11 p.m. at night and waking up at four o'clock in the morning. And I wouldn't bat an eyelid about it. Yeah, And you know, we talk and, and it would be this hypocrisy of me talking, going in and talking to my clients about the importance of sleep, but I was having four or five hours a night, tops, yeah. probably for 20 years. Wow. You know, and that was, that was my life. But in building those foundations and, and, and getting to that point enabled me to then do the things you were talking about, which yeah. was being in charge of your own time, being able to not be dictated by anybody else and being able to do your own thing. But then in doing my own thing, I actually became more disciplined than I was when people were telling me what to do. Yeah. You know, which was the funny thing, right? Yeah. So you, I think you've explained a paradox there, which I'm fascinated by. So on the one hand, you've created this routine, which works for you. So I wrote a book called Routine Equals Results. Now, people are always asking me, they're asking successful people, I get you asked, bet you get this, asked this a hundred times. What does your daily routine look like? Well, it doesn't fucking matter what my routine looks like. <laughs> what it matters is, what is the ideal routine for you? Because you might work better late at night. I might work better early in the morning. Your industry might be more late. Like if you work in the restaurant or the pub or the nightclub, yeah, train, yeah, totally. you are driven all, by that. Yeah, and for me, shifted. I can only do my meetings from 9, 9.30 in the morning yeah, because yeah. my staff aren't here at 6 in the morning. So I think stage one of creating your ideal routine is what works for you? What kind of body type are you? Are you, an, you know, uh, like someone who gets up early or someone who works well late at night? How much sleep do you need? Because I'm a big believer that you need more sleep than a lot of people have been been saying, and you've got to test that. Um, what peaks and troughs do you have in the day energy-wise? So, you know, I come to life at sort of 6 a.m., but 3 p.m., uh, unless I'm doing an interview, this is one of the reasons why we put an interview, because this is a bad time for me, but if I've got a good interview with a, you know, a good conversation, it, it peaks me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really do any work after kind of 4 or 5 p.m. because I really drop energy-wise. So you figure all that out, and then you create sort of an ideal routine. But then you've got to think about what's right for your clients, what's right for your family, um, and then you create the structure which works. But 
If you don't have any balance, I spoke to someone yesterday um, who's huge in Formula One and he's been doing it for 23 years and he basically uh, pretty much said, I'm over, I'm out, I've given 23 years to Formula One and I've not got a partner, not got much of a social life and what the fuck on who am I? Yeah, where do I go now, right? Yeah, Um, which is a paradox. So... Because on the one hand, you want to build your business and be successful, but you need to see your kids. You probably need to have some kind of social life. You need to save money and invest money because as a PT, what happens if you get really injured? You know, what happens if the, the gym that you're working in just kicks you out or changes their policies or wants a much bigger commission? Um, the other paradox is you say run your own diary on your own life, on your own time, on your own terms. I get that, but I really believe we all need accountability. I mean, you wouldn't have an industry and a job and a career because if everyone was accountable for their own fitness, they wouldn't need you. Of course, yeah. So we all need external accountability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes I wake up and I look at my diary and it is just like a London tube map and I think, oh, my life, this is disgusting. It makes me want to puke. But then I know by the time I get to the end of the day, all these people have kept me accountable and I've actually delivered a really good day. But then do you feel that when, when there was no other commitments, that you were only accountable to yourself in many respects? Or the people that employed oh, you or the people you work for? I, Whereas now, my accountability comes largely from my family, is that I'm now responsible for other people. Yeah. Whereas before... I like, think that's good, by the way. A lot yeah, of people, yeah, totally. You know, a lot of people are saying, I want to be my own boss, I want to work for myself, I want freedom. It's almost like they don't want accountability to anyone. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as you lose accountability to others and the only person you rely on for accountability is you... Who's the easiest person to lie to? Of course. You know, it's like dieting, right? Yeah. It's like, you know... You can convince talk... yourself that what you're eating is good for you when yeah, it's not. Yeah, you, you, you know, haven't we, ate that. Talked yeah. to Kieran before about, you know, bodybuilders. Is bodybuilders who, who prep people and get them in shape have coaches. Yeah. And people are like, well, why would they need a coach? They know what they're meant to be doing. Mm. Accountability. Yeah. Because, because the easiest person to convince you that you need a... You know, I used to deal with loads of people and they'd be, you know, they'd be convincing themselves that, oh, I need a refeed. Yeah. And I definitely need a refeed and they'll be yeah. looking at their arms going, yeah, I look a bit flat. I, I could do with a pizza or something like that. And, they, and they'd convince themselves. Yeah. So they'd go out and eat a pizza. Easiest and it was the worst, to it yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. It'd be the worst thing they'd ever done. And, yeah. you know, sleeping in in the morning, oh, you know, I'm, I'm lacking a bit in sleep and you can convince yourself. And the thing is, the more you know about it, the more you can convince yourself yeah. in many respects because mm. you'd be like, well, you know, the optimal amount of sleep is this. And mm. obviously, you know, I've, 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 I'm, I'm in sleep debt and, I, you know, I need to sleep <laughs> in this morning when in fact you actually need to get off your ass and go and do something. Yeah. So I believe the reasons that people don't embrace scale and PT's like the greatest case study. But it's for any business. If you're a plumber, if you're a builder, it's the same thing, one to many. So I believe people, one, they fear hiring people yep. because there's an overhead that they feel like they can't afford, that they may set up in competition, screw them over, they're too busy to do it, or they're earning good money doing the sessions and they don't really think about the scaling beyond it and that the, the trap that that is they don't realize that the, the more you get towards your ceiling of time that you can invest per week to be a one-to-one personal trainer you don't realize it's actually a trap and it gets you cocooned um so just summarize then they're scared about people setting up a competition they're scared about hiring people they um, don't realize the the trap that they're in 
Um, sometimes people don't think that they want to scale. You know, they kind of want a, a lifestyle business. Safety net, isn't it? Yeah. They, you know, that they, they, they realise it's a lot more time. And I think they're the main elements that stop people doing it. And it must be rife in the personal training industry where um, people go and set up their own gyms and kind of set up in competition and that kind of stuff. I think that's right for me. Now, I, I don't know of anybody... All the people that I know that have set up really good facilities and set up really good gyms, somebody has left yeah, of course. and tried to compete with them. So it's normal. And, it, and, and it's yeah. just a normal part of it. And, and really, in many respects, I, I try and flip it and flip the mentality on it and go, that's a good thing. Yeah. Because you've created something that somebody out there seems to think they can just step in and steal and do whatever they need to do. And you know, I've seen it multiple times. And, and the funny thing is, I've never seen anybody succeed. Yeah. I've never seen anybody take a model and go, right, you know, I'm going to copy what Rob's doing down the road and I'm going to go over here and do it. Uh, you know, I'm just going to steal all his customers and blah, blah, mm. blah. Because it's never well thought through. No. It's, I think the PT industry is largely full of initially egos. A lot of insecurities, which again, I think is part of the reason why a lot of people don't scale because they're terrified of failure. Yeah. They're terrified of failure. They're terrified of rejection. It's like why PTs don't increase their prices. Rejection. Yeah. They don't want a client turning around to them going, I, I, I don't want to train with you anymore or I can't train with you anymore because yeah. to them, it's like, it's like a knife in the heart, yeah. right? You know, they can't deal what with it. What they that. don't realize is if you let go of a lower paying client, you create space for a higher paying client. Of course, yeah. yeah. But then the PT's argument would always be, yeah, but I want to look after my old clients. So yeah. who do you want to look after? Your old clients or your family? Mm. You know, because which one's more important? Because really, and also, uh, you could you could argue you're looking after your older clients better by passing them on to someone else because you've moved on. And the amount of PTs that I hear as well, where the clients have actually turned around and said, "You should charge more." Mm. You know, when it gets to that point, you're probably three or four years yeah. overdue. Yeah, because they've thought about this and think they deliver a really good service. So they should probably charge more. They should probably charge more until eventually, I actually vocalise that to my mm. coach. You go. You should charge more. Well, I'm never going to say that to my PT, you know, am I? You should charge hey, more. Hey, I've, I've had it. I've yeah. had it with my clients years and years ago. I had a, a client turn around to me categorically and say, you need to up your prices. And this was really switched on business money yeah. up in Cumbria. Mm. And he said, you need to increase your prices. And I was like, really? You think yeah. that? And it was just that little nudge and that little confidence booster from somebody who was a hugely successful. He owned a bunch of motorsports teams and you know he sponsored one of the guys that turned out to be one of the world champions in, uh, in superbikes. And... It was just that nudge that I needed. And I went and increased my price and nothing happened. Mm. Apart from I made more money. Yeah. You know, and it was bizarre. And that's one of the first things we talk about with, with respect to where the PTs position themselves. Because at the end of the day, people will generally perceive the best delivery of a service will come with price. Is that the more expensive mm. something is, typically the better it is. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and people forget that. People forget that actually, just on a really simplistic level, if it looks more expensive, it'll probably be more valuable. Yeah, and if it is more expensive, you know, and yeah. I, I, I was chatting to, to my son about this yesterday. He was, he was doing his, his, his studying business studies and he was talking about margins and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was trying to explain to him the fact that, you know, somebody who produces a pair of sunglasses, you could reproduce those exact sunglasses with the exact same specifications for, you know, uh, 10% of what they're charging. And he said, well, how can they do that? I said, it's how they position themselves in the market. Brand. They've spent time developing their brand and positioning it at this boutique, this 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 luxury level, mm. and they've taken the time to do that. Mm. So they've presented something that's that's incredible. I always talk about the Hermes scarf, right? It's yeah. a scarf. Yeah. It's a scarf. Whatever way you look at it, mm. it's a scarf. You wrap it around your neck, keeps you warm. If that, yeah. If that, mm. most of the time it's a fashion item. You know, when do they sell them more scarves? They sell them more scarves in the silks. People think they're getting a bargain, but they're still paying four hundred pounds for a scarf. Mm. You know, so it's that perception of luxury that you get from something that's more expensive. Yeah. Whereas it might not be better quality. And if it isn't better quality, 
people who pay for it will move on very, very quickly. And you know from you know dealing with uh, properties and all these different things, when p somebody comes to something and they pay over the odds for it, they expect something quite special. Yeah. And if that isn't delivered, mm. they'll move on. So then that's very the value quick. part. So Correct. we just covered the price part, but then there's the value Correct. part. A lot of people are there waiting for something to happen instead of going, actually, how can I look at what I do and make it better and give more to my client, better service, add-ons, bonuses, things that other people don't get. Yeah. I remember there was a hairdresser's in Peterborough when I used to have hair and used to get it cut at a hairdresser's. And um, he was trying to position himself on the higher end and he'd come in and he'd talk to you and he dressed up all funky and he'd like bring you like little um, nuts and sort of side things. And yeah, on. Yeah. He had a, fr a fridge full of drinks. You could even yeah, have, you could have a beer when you come now, in. Yeah, all yeah. of that is a bit more normal now. But yeah, yeah. way back then, you never got any of that. Um, and, you know, you got a head massage when you had your hair washed and all that. And I'm talking like 20 years ago. And you sold an experience, right? Yes. It was an experience. Yes. You, went in, you didn't just want to, you know, you drop in, get your hair cut, walk is, back This out, is how right? retailer developing, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. You know, because obviously if, if you're retail and you sell just products, you've probably been hit pretty hard. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of retail now, obviously they're trying to leverage online, but they're trying to create more services. Look at Barclays Bank or Metro Bank and you go into them now. It's like a showroom. It's not just a bank. Yeah. And they're, they're offering a service as well as a product. A Metro Bank probably leading the way with that one, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you, know, you go to Metro Bank in Peterborough. a little Peterborough. bit old yeah. school, right? But I mean, they've, re they've recently had a Metro Bank in, in Peterborough, but they've also probably in the last five years redeveloped Barclays. And you go in and people come to you and they talk to you and they ask you what you want and they direct you around and there's sofas. Uh, you know, and it's just more of an experience. Yeah, yeah. And that's how you pivot out of... Um, you know, disruptions if you're just a commodity or a product based. And, and um, this is this, you know, I was talking about industry. the hotel industry. I was talking about the hotel industry. Great example of service, right? Yeah. When, and, and I talk about the five star hotels, right? You can get two five star hotels positioned right next to each other. One of them's a thousand pound the night, one of them's 200 pound the night. Amenities exactly the same. One's got a swim pool, the other one's got a swim pool. They've yeah. both got spas, they've both got golf courses, they've both got everything is the same apart from the price. Mm. So what's the difference? And the difference is the experience. Yeah. The difference is the experience they get. And, you know, talk about this in our industry is that every time, you know, and, and, and one of my mentors years ago said, put on a performance. Mm. You know, as a PT, yes. you put on a performance is that that client has to leave your PT session remembering it mm. and knowing something special happened there or they learned something new that nobody else had ever taught them, you know, depending on what they're looking yeah. for. You know, I've, 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 I've blurted out loads of stuff to various clients and they don't care. They don't want to listen to that. They just want trained, yeah. you know, and you've got to figure out who's who. And then other people, I've given them documents to go away and read themselves. Some people are interested, some people aren't. And you've just got to be able to decipher who those people are. Mm. But it's about service. It's about delivering. It's about that value of what you're offering for the price you're offering. Because again, when we talk about scaling... Yeah, because price is linked to value. Yeah, because the rest yeah. of it is completely pointless. You can't scale anything unless you're delivering something that is of high quality in many respects. Because it's just a short-lived business model. Mm. Anybody can make a lot of, you know, me and you, we could probably go out of here today and create something complete tat and make a lot of money off it very, very quickly. But every single one of those customers that comes and takes it, they're never coming back. Mm. They're never coming back. And that's a very costly exercise, right? Yeah. And we know this. Yeah. So people ask me a lot about scaling a business. And um, probably five years ago, let's say, I did about 250 speaking days in a year and there were full days. Um, part of the reason I did that is because I really enjoy public speaking. So I was all game for the scaling up, leveraging, training, outsourcing, getting in trainers. Um, but I was getting in my own way, really, because I just always reverted to type of wanting to be the speaker on the stage. So there's probably some personal trainers out there that really love their job and love the 
praise and the adulation and a bit of the ego feed, which I definitely got on the stage as a public speaker. Um, so that was often one of the barriers to growth in addition to the other things I said. Um, and I had one experience as a public speaker towards the end of that year uh, when I did 250 speaking days. Because I mean, I know speakers who do 300 speaking gigs a year, um, but they do 90 minute speeches or 60 minute speeches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing 250 full days, like 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I, I had two things that happened. One is I lost my voice <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely yeah. when yeah. I broke the public speaking world record, the longest public speech, and I lost my voice. I couldn't talk. And the second thing was I had a, an out-of-body experience or a vision when I was speaking because I was so mentally fucked. Um, I actually was sat there doing a speech to an audience and, and I came out of my own body and I went and sat down next to myself and I started trolling myself live in front of this audience. <laughs> Hell like, abusive, yeah, exactly, yeah, heckling myself. <laughs> And, and I realised in those moments, and they happened quite soon to each other, I needed to change, otherwise I was going to batter myself. Because as an entrepreneur, you can't, it's, an, it's addictive. Working hard is something we're taught, and it's not always a good thing to teach, by the way. All the Americans talk about hustle and grind, and you know, you've got to do 18 hours a day, and you've got to want success as much as you want to breathe, and you've got to 10x and go all in and go big or go home. And they teach us all this shit. And it's, it's very good if you're unmotivated. It's not very good if you're obsessive because all you do is you have no family, you have no balance, your health is screwed, your mental yeah, capacity yeah, yeah. is gone, but you've got a bit of money in the bank. And I don't want to make that sacrifice. So I went on the following journey. Um, the first thing I did was I embraced the fact that uh, within nine months, I was going to get off the stage. And the way I did that was I booked a mentoring um, retreat in Cayman. And I ended up taking about 12 clients to Cayman for nearly a whole month doing masterminding with them. And we booked it. Well, we actually booked it a year in advance because Mark likes to get the air miles. And, and you know, so we go on business <laughs> for a few hundred quid. But it was booked and we were paid up. And I'd sold clients into, I was mentoring them in Cayman Islands in about, when it had all done, about nine months. Yeah, yeah. So I had to be away from the company for a month which meant our big event, multiple streams of property income, someone else had to run. All of our delivery events that I was running, someone else had to run. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'd been wanting to do this for a few years, but the fact that our, uh, you know, we couldn't cancel it because I booked 12 clients on and paid 15 grand each. And of course, to travel, we paid 45 grand for a villa. So uh, we were all in on this. Yeah, yeah. And that, it, it was that that made me follow the processes over the next 12 months to get myself out of the business. And, and it's stuff that you read in my book, Life Leverage, or The E-Myth, or Work the System, or Built to Sell, and all the books we've all read. So basically what I did was, the first thing is, everything that I do, or my speaking, or my training, everything that's in my head, we have to get out of my head, and we have to put on a PowerPoint, or on, on video, or on audio. Everything that I know. That yeah. took about four months. Now, if you sit and write it, it's a bit laborious. If you record it, it's easier. So, for example, if I was a PT, I'd ask the permission of my, um, what do you call them, um, student yeah, yeah. or client. client, do you mind if I just record the audio on my Zoom? I'm just trying to um, train up some of my trainers. Oh, yeah, no problem. I'd give them a bit of a discount if they um, had a bit of an issue with that. And basically, what I say in the sessions, it's recorded because you can show them how to do an exercise easy. Yeah. You know, you said about giving an experience. Yeah. You know, and, and how you talk to them and motivate them and, and that kind of stuff. That's harder to teach. So I've now got that on audio. So now someone I'm training up can listen to that and hear how I do it. Then they can watch all the training videos of all the exercises that I do. And then I can create a culture or a, a brand document about how I do it different from, say, David Lloyd yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or the other personal trainers. So stage one was getting everything out of my head 
onto video, audio, and documents and manuals. And that probably took me four months by recording everything uh, that I did and then having a PA, an assistant, collate it into, you know, manuals, flowcharts, pretty pictures, you know, making it easy for someone. The next thing is I have to create a career path for my assistant trainers. So yep. I wrote an ascension plan, I call it. So basically, let's say you're one of my clients. You go, Rob, I'd like to run your events one day. I love what you do. That's the start. Yep. How do I get you to go from you to me? So that was, first off, you've got to do my speaker course and you've got to study this material. That's step one. Yep. So you do that. Step two is you've got to have some results in your field. So go buy 10 properties, 20 properties. Most of them had already done that. But you've got to have some qualifications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And we might help you fund that. That's step two. All right, step three is you've got to shadow me for a while. Uh, you sign an NDA and then I'll give you all of my training material. So you're bound by the NDA. You shadow me for a while. Um, and then when you're ready, you get to assist me for a while. And then when you're ready, you get to lead for a little bit. And then when you're ready, you get to lead for the whole event. Yeah, yeah. But you only have a small audience and I'm invigilating, watching you lead. What are you doing? And then if you do well, you get a few more audience members. And if you don't do so well, I give you feedback and you, you stay at that level. Yep. And then as you do better and you get a big event, you get a bigger event and a bigger event and a bigger event. Yep. Um, and, and now I have my speaker speaking on stages for a thousand people for promoters of mine. When I used to do that three, yep. or, four, three or four years ago. That is a process everyone can do in pretty much any business. I mean, Odomar's P.K., we're both wearing an AP. Um, I, and I know it's still a family-owned business, but the original watchmakers of this watch are not alive anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's proof that it can be done. Don't wait yeah, till you yeah, die yeah. For, it to, for it to move on. And, and I think that's the bit that takes you from PT to a David Lloyd. And that's the bit most PTs don't know. Cool. Got anything else on there? Ferrari or Lamborghini? Um, well, I have both. I know. So. That's, why I, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> Did I sound like a cock when I said that? Um, I'd probably keep the Aventador, though the Testarossa is a thing of beauty. Um, yeah. All right, Lamborghini for now. But the, I tell you what, the bloody servicing costs on a Lamborghini are way more than a Ferrari. <laughs> but you don't buy them for that. Lamborghini. You could buy more tyres. Yeah. Far, tires. far. You could pay 10 grand for a set of tyres on a Lambo. Easy. Yeah. 10 grand. Yeah. Five grand a wheel. Got quite a 35 grand for a new gearbox when there's a tiny little oil leak. Yep, anyway, Lamborghini. Okay. And that's, that's any Ferrari you could have? Um, I, I don't know. Like, I like the Lamborghini brand because I like something that's... It's just a little bit more boutique and it's probably just a little bit they more tractors. racy. Yeah, well, no, they did. I, I know <laughs> the story. I know the story. Um, but that makes them more interesting. It does, yeah. Yeah, I think the motivation behind... Um, That's my rural side coming right, out. Yeah. I'm like, Lamborghini used to make tractors. Yeah. That was the first kind of intro I ever had to Lamborghini. Mm. They don't make tractors anymore. Do they not? No. I didn't actually know that. Yeah. That, that, I just always think it's yeah. an, interesting, an interesting fact that yeah. Lamborghini used to make tractors. Yeah, they did. Very they, good tractors, apparently, as well. Yeah, well, but the motivation for them making cars was because um, the founder of Ferrari basically goaded the founder of Lamborghini that you make tractors. Silly boy. Yeah, there you go. Silly boy, there you go. So yeah. Lamborghini, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm happy cool. with the Lamborghini answer. All right. Cool. Phil, thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>